today's uh, focus is on Egypt, and we have a, a blue ribbon uh, a, a group of uh, specialists uh, who will uh, focus on different aspects of it. We have Kareem Agad first, uh, uh, immediately to my left. He's a fellow at the Near East South Asia uh, Center for Strategic Studies at the National Defense University of the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense. Uh, he formerly was the head of uh, information and public affairs at the Embassy of Egypt. And get this, he worked in the office of the president of Egypt from 2002 to 2007. Now, the office of the president of Egypt is not exactly the current president of Egypt, nor is it the immediate past president of Egypt. But I underscore that to just uh, provide an image of the specialties that he uh, brings to the table. And I will introduce the other very briefly in sequence. Karim. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, for uh, this very kind invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, as we've come to expect from Dr. Anthony, in that he gathers uh, this wonderful group uh, on very urgent and pressing matters with regards to the region uh, here where it matters, uh, on the hill. And this, obvious, this, uh, this occasion is obviously very timely in that we've seen an extraordinary development of events uh, in Egypt. Uh, as Dr. Anthony mentioned, when we say the former regime in Egypt, we're not clear what that means now. We have the former, and we have the former former now. Um, so it has been an, an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary turn of events. And I think it's important to spend just a little time on unpacking how we got here. Uh, and then begin to discuss uh, the challenges uh, moving forward. Now, when we say uh, extraordinary, I think that really reflects uh, the true meaning of the word when we look at the reality of uh, the events that have unfolded in Egypt, not just over the course of the last few weeks, but really over the course of this last year. Extraordinary in the sense that we had the first democratically elected president of Egypt in the person of Dr. Mohammed Morsi, who was the first civilian uh, elected to uh, the office of head of state in Egypt. Extraordinary in that he was the first Islamist elected uh, to that post uh, in free and fair elections, to my knowledge, in any Arab country but also extraordinary in the spectacular failure of uh, his tenure uh, as president. And what we've seen over the course of the last year was really the convergence of multiple crises that have beset Egypt uh, all at the same time. We've seen the political crisis that unfolded and that stemmed really from the majoritarian approach of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in power. Its focus was not on the business of governance, but on the business of political control. And because of that, we've seen that converge with a very serious economic crisis that brought the Egyptian uh, economy almost to the brink uh, of collapse. And that, of course, was coupled by a, a, a very serious security crisis with the breakdown of public security, as we've seen. Uh, over the course uh, of the last few months, uh, especially in, in the major cities uh, in Egypt. The combination of 
or that convergence uh, of crisis really brought Egypt to the brink of collapse. I think, though, what the most extraordinary thing we've seen is the sheer display of people power once again in Egypt. We had on June 30th, which was the anniversary of President Morsi's election uh, in 2012, what historians will probably look at as one of the largest political demonstrations in history. I think it was Google Earth that put the number at close to 17 million people that demonstrated on that day, not just in Cairo, uh, but nationwide uh, in Egypt. And this was obviously the second time that Egyptians took to the streets to protest against uh, what they saw as a very unjust regime. Now, it's important to note that the outcome in which we had the military intervene to oust uh, President Morsi was not the preferred outcome of any of the parties involved in the anti-Morsi coalition. Not of the protesters, and I believe also not of the military. The protesters that took to the streets uh, uh, on that day had one simple demand, that President Morsi called for early elections so that people would have a referendum on his tenure as president. The demand was not for change by the hand of the military, but change through the ballot box. And it was interesting also to note that the military, as it saw this convergence of crises, and as it saw the gathering of those millions of people uh, on the streets, did not have as its preferred outcome the need to step in and oust an elected president from office. What we've seen the military do was time and time again, both in the weeks leading up to June 30th and on the day of June 30th itself, offer repeated attempts to President Morsi for him to find a political exit from this crisis, either through calling early presidential elections or, at a very minimum, call for a national referendum on his presidency. President Morsi regrettably rejected all of those offers. Had President Morsi opted for a political exit, I think Egypt would be spared much of the political crisis that we now find unfolded in Egypt as a result of the turn of events. A crisis, it certainly is. However, I think it also offers a second chance. A second chance at a transition to a true democracy, and a second chance to correct the mistakes of the first transition following the fall of President Mubarak uh, in February of 2011. So there is hope in the midst uh, of this crisis. And what I want to do very quickly is go through the challenges that Egypt will face for this next transition uh, to succeed. And very quickly, I count three challenges. The first, of course, is the absolute necessity to go back or transition back to a period or, or to a process of democratically elected civilian rule in Egypt. Now here, I think it's important to note that no one is more conscious of this than the Egyptian military itself. 
We've seen after the ouster of President Morsi, the military hand power the very next day to a judge, in this case, the head of the Supreme Constitutional Court, Judge Abdul Mansour, who now as interim president holds absolute executive authority. We've seen the interim president move rapidly to issue a transition plan back to full democracy. In the next three to four months, we will have a new constitution and a public referendum on that constitution. In the next four to five months, we will have parliamentary elections, followed thereafter by presidential elections, all within a time frame not to exceed nine months. Now that, of course, is an extremely demanding timetable. But I think what it reflects is the sense of urgency in transitioning back to a full democratic system as quickly as possible. So the timetable is clear, the sequence is clear, and I think the urgency is clear. We've also seen the interim president move very rapidly to form a, a new cabinet. And here, this brings us to the second challenge that Egypt will face, which is the economy. Now, I think if we look at the composition of the cabinet, there is a clear sense of the need to address the situation of near economic collapse that Egypt faces. The need to turn the economy around is clearly reflected in what has, I think, been, been seen to be a very strong technocratic government that brings the type of competence and diversity that was sorely lacking in the various governments that, was formed, uh, that were formed under President Morrison. We've seen now the priority to get public spending back under control, as was announced by various cabinet members. We've seen the need to address the deterioration in uh, public services that uh, was clearly evident over the course uh, of the last year. And we've also seen the need for a robust social agenda to address the aspirations of the revolution for uh, social justice. The third challenge is probably the most difficult, and that relates to the Muslim Brotherhood itself. I think one very important point of emphasis that was expressed by all of the political parties involved in the anti-Morsi coalition that grew out of the June 30th revolution, and also by the interim leadership, is the need for political reconciliation. I don't think there are any illusions on the part of the political forces that took to the streets on June of the desirability or even the ability to exclude the Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood from power uh, in Egypt. All of them have expressed the need to integrate the Brotherhood into the emerging political order, and the door is wide open for the Brotherhood to participate not only in the constitution writing process that will unfold over the next few months, but also in the coming elections. I think the recognition is that the problem is not with the Brotherhood as a movement, but with the leadership of the Brotherhood that really brought Egypt uh, to this very difficult situation. We have not seen any move to dissolve the Freedom and Justice Party, which is the political arm of the Brotherhood. We have not seen any widespread crackdown on the grassroots members of the Brotherhood. 
they have been allowed to demonstrate uh, uh, during uh, uh, the last few weeks and in various areas of Cairo. The problem is with the leadership. And yes, various members of the leadership have been uh, placed uh, under temporary arrest facing charges of political incitement uh, and incitement to violence. So the choice, I think, for the Brotherhood is clear. It could either reintegrate into the political system on the basis of very, of very specific values of pluralism and diversity that the new interim leadership hope, hopes to instill and integrate into the emerging constitutional system. And these are values that I think are important for all political forces to adhere to, regardless of who holds the political majority at any one time. The alternative for the Brotherhood is, of course, that they can resist the uh, unfolding transition. And that, of course, seems to be the choice that they are opting for, at least uh, until now. One important point to emphasize, I think, is if the Brotherhood opts to resort to violence, I think the biggest loser will be the Brotherhood itself. Because contrary to the Brotherhood's attempts to portray the ouster of President Morsi as simply another round of confrontation between them and the military, I think this time the dynamics are different. The confrontation is not between the Brotherhood and the state. It is not between the Brotherhood and the military. It is between the Brotherhood and the broad center of Egyptian society that seems to have thoroughly repudiated uh, their tenure in office and what they exhibited in terms of their very divisive ideology. So the dynamics are different. If the Brotherhood does choose to play the spoiler, I think what we will have in Egypt is not another Algeria, uh, as, some, uh, as some have uh, expressed concern, but really a political suicide for the Brotherhood as a movement in Egyptian politics. So these are the three challenges before us. I know others here on the panel will probably talk about the United States role. I just want to emphasize one thing uh, in closing. The United States, I think, has a stake uh, in the success of this process. We are talking about a very strategic relationship between Egypt and the United States. But we are talking also about another chance at a true democratic, pluralistic political experiment that hopefully this second chance Egyptians can get right. I think the United States has a stake in the success of this process and hopefully will be invested uh, in its success. So with that, let me end here and uh, bring it back to Dr. Anton. Thank you. Thank you, Corrine, for placing things uh, in the context of uh, background and, and perspective uh, from a, a seasoned uh, participant in Egypt's uh, national and governmental process and dialogue and, and evolution. It's, it's obvious by the turnout in this particular room that Egypt uh, is a matter of no small moment. Uh, for many uh, people on, on this particular planet. And I would simply ask and underscore that you ponder the implications of the following, uh, that here in the case of Egypt, we have the one country in the world uh, 
that owns the Suez Canal.
a little slightly more nuanced uh, view of what is happening, of what happened in this transition, because I don't think it's as black and white as it has made out. Uh, the second is to look at what I think are the most difficult problems of the transition moving forward. Because while I think it's easy to say there have to be elections, there has to be a constitution, there have to be elections, there are many pitfalls on the way to those elections. And the possibility of the process being going wrong away, again, as it did in the past, are indeed very strong. Let me talk a little bit about the complexity of what, of what happened in this process that in the end the led the political coup d'etat. And I don't think there is any other way of putting it. Whether or not you think it's justified or not, whether the military had a duty to intervene, as some have argued that's not, that is arguable. I don't think there is a way of arguing that it was not a coup d'etat because you have the military taking over. And let's face it, if Mohammed Morsi was deposed by the military and was not deposed by the people in the streets. Yes, the military intervened on uh, the, on the base, you know, following these massive demonstrations that took place. But there was, you know, even we had a military, uh, a military intervention. Now, um, a few things about what happened. Yes, there was a massive uh, uh, campaign of collecting signatures against Morsi. And I think there is going, I suspected that there is a lot of information that's beginning to come out about who was involved in collecting the signatures. That it was not just the kid, idealistic kids in the streets, that in fact that they had a lot of help. I am not going to talk about what I'm beginning to hear now because I think it's all going to come out before too long and I think I leave it, I, I leave it at that for the time. But there was a much more concerted effort there. There's no doubt that a lot of people were beginning to be disgusted with the Muslim Brotherhood. You heard a lot of it. I go back to Egypt all the time. You certainly heard a lot in the streets. There is also uh, there is also no doubt that there was a concerted effort to make to make sure that the Muslim Brotherhood looked as bad as possible in this period. The uh, gasoline shortages don't disappear from one day to another unless they were engineered. Uh, electricity cuts, I don't believe that anybody can, can uh, uh, repair the electricity network, the distribution system in three days unless something had been done to make sure that they were, were cut. So what we are looking at is a situation which is very complex. And I don't want to sound as a defender of the Muslim Brotherhood, but I think it's impossible. It's very important not to make the situation black and, uh, black and white here, because I think that that is also going to affect what's going to happen in the future. Let me point out that there was that there would have been a fairly simple way of getting rid of or of curbing the power of Morsi in a democratic fashion before without recurring to this uh, uh, to this street of violence. And that was to, to have the parliamentary election. The new constitution for all its faults does share power between an elected parliament and the president. The elections for those of us who have forgotten or never knew, what was the schedule for it? And there was, it was the Supreme Court, it was the courts that continued rejecting the election law 
and made sure that the new election law could not be prepared very quickly, that essentially perpetuated the power of uh, the perpetuated the power of Morsi. Why? Because why is it that there was the the, uh, the possibility of the election as the solution, the parliamentary election as the solution was not taken, and I would argue because the uh, the opposition, the secular opposition, the National Salvation Front, other political parties have no confidence in their ability to win elections next time. And let me argue that nothing has changed. That the, the situation that we have in Egypt now is still that, yes, we have a diminished Muslim Brotherhood. I don't know how much Salafi parties are diminished. We will not know until we get to, until we get to the elections. We have a um, secular parties, you can no longer call them the secular opposition, but we, you have secular parties. They are as much as disarray as they were before. They are the National Salvation Front, if you read the newspapers, is beginning to fall apart. It was never very united. It was united in order to achieve a specific progress. Waft is talking about the possibility of getting out. The leftist parties are, uh, are uh, um, uh, you know, are beginning to express doubts about uh, the so-called liberal parties, and frankly, I always use the term so-called because I find it difficult to, in my definition of the word liberal, enthusiastic support for the military, for a military takeover does not quite fit in, uh, in, the definition, in the definition of the word. And particularly, you have, a, you have secular parties that have never developed strong party organizations, strong constituencies. The last time that I was in Egypt in uh, October of this year, and one of the uh, goals of the trip for me was to find out what was happening in the ranks of the, uh, of the secular opposition. And I visited the headquarters of them. And very frankly, my conclusion at the end of that visit was, oh my god, there is nowhere, nowhere there. That most of these parties Go to the, you went to the Dustur party, and keep in mind that ever since then, the Dustur party has structured. In other words, there is no reason to believe that it is, that, that it is any better. You have a lot of empty offices with people wandering around, few people wandering around. There aren't even desks in there. There is not a place where you get the impression that there are people working very hard in order to, uh, to get the... Uh, to get the uh, 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 you know, a party organized and ready for elections, which at that point were scheduled just a few months, a few months later. So there is a real problem here still of the fact that Egypt is going to enter the elec this election season. And elections, I think the military really wants to have these elections. I'm going to enter these elections uh, season again with an extremely imbalanced political aspect, in which you have for better or for worse, the Islamist parties that are well organized, because Islamist parties have been organized forever. They believe in organization, they have an ideology, they have this, and therefore they are well organized. And on the other side, uh, secular parties that are extremely disorganized and extremely, they tend to be parties organized around or formed by a big personality. So that you have Faraday, you have uh, Amram Musa, you have uh, Hamdin Sabahi, and they are all chiefs and no Indians. In other words, these are not, they are, essentially they are organizations that, that are more appropriate 
support the candidate in a presidential election than in supporting a political party in a parliamentary election where you have to have a presence on the ground. This is very important. There is a lot of there are a lot of studies, a lot of reports that talk about the elections in uh, the last election, the, the election of 2000, late 2011, 2012, the elections for the parliament that was then dissolved. They point out, and this comes from election, of, you know, American election observers, from European election observers, and so on. They're talking back and say, no wonder the Northern won the elections, and the Salafi parties won the elections. There were no party offices of any other parties in the whole of the region. There were very few offices anywhere else, essentially. So that what I'm pointing to is the fact that there is the absence of a structure on the part of the secular party in order to contest these elections. Now, what is the problem here? That I think, and I'm beginning to hear some of that, that there is going to be tremendous pressure. And I know that, you know, I have no doubt that it was absolutely sincere when he said it's absolutely important that the Islamist parties participate in the elections. But I think that there is going to be an enormous pressure, and I think we see it coming out in the discussions over the Constitution, to make it very difficult for these parties to participate. I hear a lot about the necessity of reintroducing the Constitution the clause that, depends, that was contained in the 1971 Constitution, uh, an article that depends parties based on, uh, based on the religion. If that happens, it's going to be, uh, you know, it's go the, 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 situ the, the situation is going to become very difficult because the, the Islamists, they are diminished. They have, uh, they have made a lot of enemies, but they also still have a lot of supporters. Uh, so essentially, what the, my point here is that one of the, what has been the tragedy of the Egyptian transition and has uh, and has really undermined the possibility of democracy, which is this very unbalanced political system in which you have on one side, or political spectrum, in which on one side you have relatively well-organized uh, uh, parties, Islamist parties, that are capable of going out and getting the vote, because in the end it's a question of going out and getting the vote, bringing the folk to the, 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 to the polling stations and so on. And on the other side, you have organizations that unfortunately remain very weak. How that problem is going to be solved, I hear a lot about the necessity of international observations in the elections. That would be very good if there was international observations. I would suggest that it might be a good idea to let the Europeans do the job and not having Americans involved, given what happened earlier with, uh, with the American NGOs. But certainly, it would be very important to have real election observations, but the basic problem is the there of this very lopsided sort of perspective. Thank you very much, Dr. Lorena. Uh, two other uh, themes of perspectives, issues that uh, you might be uh, thinking about to each one of you and a because we don't have uh, the military uh, represented here per se, despite Kareem's um, affiliation uh, as a senior fellow 
at the Near East South Asia uh, Center at uh, National Defense uh, University. And there was a consensus about how the military behaved uh, in the beginning, uh, rather more effectively or peacefully than the, the image of uh, how the police behaved. And many said, well, this has to be the result of the thousands of Egyptians who have trained and been educated in the United States uh, from the armed services and uh, drilling into them the values of the civil-military uh, relations and respect uh, by the military of uh, civil values. Um, that's a thesis uh, more than it's been uh, documented as such. And the other one is the upside-down, inside-out, and backwards dynamic of uh, the last 40 years where it used to be that Egypt was the clear number one country in the Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic uh, world. Uh, but this was before the independence of nine polities in Eastern Arabia, before the independence of the majority of the Gulf Cooperation Council members. It is these countries that have come to Egypt's aid in the last uh, week or so, some $12 billion, an amount equal to Egypt's annual uh, foreign reserves. Uh, whereas before, those countries returned all of Egypt's uh, telephone calls because of what Egypt was and had been. It looked like it would continue to be. But now it's upside down, inside out, and reversed, where it's Egypt making the telephone calls for help uh, to these countries, exactly the opposite. Now we have Diane Singerman, Associate Professor uh, in the American University School of uh, Public Affairs. And she has uh, four major publications under her belt, cooperative enterprises, each of the four, in terms of Cairo. And if there's one city in the world uh, that uh, the world has become familiar with, in the last two years, certainly in its core regarding Medani Takria, it is Cairo. She's focused on it in terms of governance, in terms of culture, uh, in terms of family, and in terms of the impact of all three in the household uh, on Egypt's national governance and political dynamics. I'm going to do something a little different. I wish I had taken some of those classes that John talked about, about the one minute, the three minute, the five minute, <laughs> being an academic. Um, I want to go to a sort of a different place. Um, as you all know, the Mubarak regime was there for about 30 years, and Kareem talked about a second chance. But if we look at other cases of uh, transition, um, it takes a very, very long time. So I, I think we really have to have a long view, and, and while we're all interested, in uh, the issue of a military intervention, I think we need to not forget the goals of the uprising. Um, and the uprising, I would argue, was not about the Constitution. It was not even about elections. It was not about religion. It was about the fall of the regime. It was about freedom, social justice, and dignity. And I want to start with those things because we have to ask whether the regime has fallen, 
since we have a military that is back in power. Um, obviously, we had a new party that came to power with a new philosophy, but that party also very quickly entrenched itself um, and increased its executive power. Very quickly, there was no legislature. And Marina's point is very important. A great constitution. Egypt didn't have a bad constitution from 1971. There are many countries which have fabulous constitutions. They never implement them. They never protect the rights. They never fulfill the rights. So I think elites have to wake up. This is not a pacted transition. This is not a pacted transition. I'll say that again. The elites are not negotiating. They're not compromising. They're not working very well together as they did in Latin America. This is, a re this, is a, this is a rebellion that started out in a very different place. And it started out with, with petition campaigns. It started out with We Are All Khalid Sayed. It started out with people that everybody had written off. Let me just say that again. Everybody had written off movements like Kafaya and others. Everyone had written off the April 6th movement and others and said this couldn't be done. And let us remember who started things and who entered after the fact, right? The question is, is there more freedom in Egypt, right? Um, the Mubarak era of free markets without freedoms, neoliberalism without citizenship rights, um, a neoliberal paradigm still exists in Egypt, pretty much the same. People are not immune from arbitrary arrest or police and military abuse. Has the government expanded social justice? Um, the, the demands for, for bread that we heard during the revolution. An equitable distribution of public goods and services. That's something that we do have not seen. And while the electricity came back quickly, there are lots of people that were trying to figure out where the electricity cuts were and which neighborhoods, and whether that was equitable. Where, who got petrol and who didn't get petrol. Are Egyptians living more dignified lives? <clears throat> um, does the rule of law treat them equally? Um, and, and here I want to sort of ask the question, how do you politically instantiate dignity, right? How do you make that happen? What laws are needed? How can they be enforced? Um, the last 20 years, there's been a rich human rights, uh, civil society activists that are calling for human rights. But the question is, how do you enforce them, right? And I would argue, how do you make government more transparent and more accountable to the public? And I think what's happened in Egypt is there's a turn to, is the government serving the public, right? Are politicians serving the public? This is the question that needs to be asked. What, what is in the interest of the public and who is that public and how do you represent that public? Because that's not an easy thing. We can have a sort of fascist notion where we just talk about the street and it's a homogenized, undifferentiated sort of thing. But how do you represent the public? And in this building today, where we are, I would, want to, I would want to remind us that all politics is local, right? All politics is local. Yet in Egypt, um, it's, it's been mass activism, it's been mass petition campaigns um, for people when they are locked out of the legislative arena. Let's not forget, people have been locked out of the legislative arena. There were elections and then there's no parliament anymore. So how do people represent themselves? How do they make demands? Um, when they are blocked from the electoral path. And, and let's not forget, in places like Brazil and Argentina, legislatures were still dominated by the same wealthy interests. Many of the militaries were still very powerful. And so the question is, how do you go around that? And here I want to argue that Tamarid actually was a very brilliant kind of campaign. It went to the street, 
it was it, it brought lots of people together. It was a petition campaign because it went local, right? It went around the kinds of institutions, the kind of elite fracture that Marina was talking about. Um, and so it's a critique of electoral democracy. We focus on elections all the time, but these elections obviously are not all of the story, and people still want bread, they still want social justice, they still want dignity, right? So the question is, how do we get there? And I would like to argue, and this is part of a project that I've been working on in Egypt called the Cairo Urban Solidarity Initiative with Egyptian architects and planners and urbanists. Um, if we look at other transitions, I'm a comparativist, sorry, I do that, Right? We want to sort of we, we want to sort of understand, for example, in Brazil what happened, right? And in the Brazilian case, there was a popular means of writing amendments to the constitution. Right? There was a popular means of, of, of amendments, 122 popular amendments were submitted to the National Assembly that had more than 12 million signatures. In Brazil, there's even a way for a public mobilization to present a bill in the legislature through a petition campaign, right? Um, and so what I would suggest here is there's a democratic gap. There's all this mass activism, there's amazing participation, there are amazing numbers of people that come out of the street, but what are they doing? They need to target the state, and the state needs to invite them in. This government has to be bold, it has to be innovative, it has to make some, uh, sort, of, some sort of symbolic efforts and substantive efforts to invite people in to create more spaces, horizontal and vertical spaces, for people to be able to absorb and sort of channel that mass activism, right? So we need to, we need to create more institutionalized linkages between activism and the state and the government, because there's a question of representation there. Who do all these people, who gives them the right to make claims without any kind of representation, right? Throughout lots of democratic transitions, the, the South Africa, the, the Workers' Party in Brazil, which now, of course, is having its own problems, they basically went to the local, the leftists actually, after they, after they gained power, they went to the local level, right? Um, they tried to devolve state power to the local municipal level. They did experiments like participatory budgeting which brought new people into the process, which gave people the direct kind of democratic right to spend money as they, as they saw at the local level. Um, I have like four suggestions here. Um, number one, the Egyptian constitution needs to be um, revised further in order to give local government more power. Nobody in Egypt is talking about municipal elections. We don't have local elections, right? There used to be local elected popular councils. The NDP dominated them. They did not allow the opposition into those local councils. Everyone dismissed the importance of those local councils, but the NDP had 95% of the seats in those 52,000 seats at municipal council levels. Right? Why? Because they didn't want to give up control, even if it was only about electricity and paving the streets, not even electricity. Number two. Um, so we need to hold municipal elections. We need to create more spaces for people to gain electoral experience, to gain administrative experience, right? Um, number, number two, we need to, um, uh, why, do, why isn't there a mayor of Cairo? Why isn't there a mayor of Alexandria? Egypt is part of the 26% of the world's population that does not have elected mayors. 
It does not have elected governors. Why? Because that's where the military retired to. Right? The military are all the governors, the police are all the, the local administration. They're the worst paid civil servants in the, in the country. So why can't we have a mayor? Um, other mayors are very famous that did well, like Bloomberg, like Ahmadinejad, like Erdogan. They all started out as mayors. And, and the reason they were popular is because they did things for people. Right? They provided goods and services for people. So elect mayors, hold municipal elections. Decentralize the Constitution further to actually have elected local councils. I mean, we have a city of 16 million people with no elected officials. We have massive informal sector areas, Ashwiyat, Isbikhaywallah, whatever, with, with no elected officials, right? Number, number, there's, a, there's, a, there's a framework of subsidiarity which argues that a matter ought to be handled by the smallest, lowest, or least centralized authority capable of addressing that, master, that matter effectively. In Egypt, everybody has to go to Tahrir Square to be heard. Why? Why? Why do you have to go to Tahrir Square? Why can't you just go to the local, uh, the local height? Right? Number four, and I'll end with this. Um, Egyptians are demanding a right to information law. The human rights community, there's draft laws as well. Without a right to information law, it's very hard for people to figure out how to hold their government accountable. It's hard for them to figure out how government works, what kinds of projects should be supported or not. And right to information law in India, for example, uh, 2005 was the, 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 the result of a, of, a, um, of a campaign from Rajasthan um, that made a huge difference in local government. Um, there were two million requests for information after that law was passed. Uh, all throughout India, people in local levels did social audits of their government, where the government officials had to come forward and explain projects, right? And so how are we going to talk about accountable government? How are we going to talk about elections? Um, the Muslim brother is the Muslim brothers are powerful because of their ideology, but also because they went local, right? How do you win elections? You don't win elections by talking on TV. You don't win elections by starting your own little political party that you don't invite anybody else to. You win elections that are national, and there's an election game going on now in Egypt. And the left and, and activists have realized this, but the activists have to take that energy um, and they have, to, they have to translate it and they have to make demands on the state, specific demands, in order to, to move things forward. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. We have as a wrap-up speaker, and I invite thank you again to raise your hand if you have a question on the three by five cards that have uh, been provided to you. The reason we uh, provide the cards is three by five is to make you more succinct, concise, uh, and phrase your question as a question, not as a comment. Uh, it's appropriate that. Rhonda uh, is the last speaker because uh, the previous one made reference to uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in terms of a mayor. Uh, it so happens, we didn't script it this way, that uh, Rhonda is half Egyptian and half Iranian. Uh, 
Rogers also the president of our own international consulting firm, which has had contracts uh, with some other countries, Libya and others, and served as deputy assistant secretary of energy in the Department of Energy, and also was closely involved with the uh, legislative career of uh, Senator Abraham from uh, Michigan. Uh, Rhonda is also a member of the Board of Directors of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, and thank you uh, to the National Council for having this very timely session. Um, I also think it's most appropriate that we held it here on Capitol Hill, um, because it's most appropriate for what I would like to address today, which is the U.S.-Egypt strategic relationship, something that, thank goodness, the previous speakers haven't talked a whole lot about, because when you're the cleanup speaker here, you want to make sure you have something left, left to say. Um, one of the particular hats I'm wearing today is the general counsel of a new organization called the American-Egyptian Strategic Alliance. We're a fairly new organization started in January of 2012, consisting of Americans who have a strong interest in the U.S.-Egypt relationship. We formed this organization after the revolution of 2011 because we realized this is a new game, this is a new reset to this relationship, and we were concerned, and rightfully so, that there was going to be a lot of changes within Egypt and a lot of confusion on America's side with respect to our policy. So I would refer you to our website, but I want to talk about six particular issues having to do with the U.S.-Egypt strategic relationship where our organization wants to go, and maybe some outside-the-box thinking on these issues. The first is on economic prosperity and trade. We want to continue to keep that relationship strong. You know, Egypt's too big to fail. And while we're happy to talk about free trade agreements and others, now may not be the appropriate time because of the transitional phase that Egypt's going through, but we, as Americans, have put forth to those in Egypt, and we are in constant communication with folks on the ground, with opposition political parties. In fact, I was talking to Kareem, I was just in uh, communication with a new foreign minister, many of you know, in the interim government, Nabil Fahmi, the former ambassador here, and I was talking to them about some of the economic ideas we have here. And should the Egyptians want our help? What about having a new economic plan for Egypt? coming together with the foremost experts, not only in Egypt, but offering the foremost experts from the United States and elsewhere around the world, people like Mohammed al-Aryan, many of you may know him, famous Egyptian-American, head of PIMCO, extraordinary economic mind, people like Richard Branson and others who want to help Egypt. Putting them down at the table, forming an economic plan, something that the people can see, feel, touch, and know which way Egypt's going forward. The second issue, of course, we've heard a lot about this, is democratic development and rule of law. Um, again, one of my other hats, I'm the vice president of the Egyptian-American Rule of Law Association. We put together a group of Egyptian-American lawyers who really want to help move Egypt forward on this idea of democratic development and on rule of law. We think we have quite a bit to offer, and we only offer should our, should our help be wanted. Uh, but it is, and one of the first projects we took on, oddly enough, was something called Freedom of Information. Why? Because Freedom of Information was much at the pinnacle of why the initial revolution broke out. No information from the government, the government acting at will. And Freedom of Information is important to this day in any democracy. The third area, of course, is ensuring human rights. 
women, minorities, political minorities, uh, religious minorities. Um, how important and basic is that? Not only here in America, but to the future of Egypt, certainly. And we'd like to make sure that the United States helps Egypt again in any way they need in moving that forward, certainly, for successful. The next area, of course, is the most stickiest area, and being here in the building, again, most appropriate, is U.S. appropriations to Egypt. And I'm going to divide the military arms sales out of that because I think our relationship with the military is so incredibly important. Let's talk about U.S. appropriations to Egypt. Let's rethink it. <coughs> not saying cut it, not necessarily saying add to it, but everybody knows the story. How many times do you have to go to Egypt to hear the story? We have the biggest USAID mission in Egypt, and not one Egyptian can tell you what that money has gone to, the economic aid. They can tell you the Japanese built them the beautiful opera house, and believe me, I've been in it for international conferences. They can see that. What can they see? with our USAID, and I'm not saying that we don't work really hard, those people at our mission work very hard, people at our embassy work very hard, but it's not tangible. How about this for a novel idea? Why don't we ask the Egyptians, the Egyptian people, do you want our money? Do you even want our money as US taxpayers? And if you do, how would you like to see that money being used? And maybe we hear things like education, health, the environment, something other than what we think they need. So how about having a conversation on U.S. appropriations when so much money goes there? Uh, again, with respect to the military arms sales, our group is not advocating certainly holding back. But we have to be very difficult, or very, excuse me, sensitive to the difficult situation in which, during the first revolution, protesters were out on the streets being tear gassed by tear gas canisters that were being made in America, Pennsylvania, uh, to be specific. And so with respect to our relationship with the military, it's very interesting that, of course, we have many reasons, strategic reasons, for the US to support the Egyptian military. But why is it that we have a law in the United States that says if there is a military coup, that aid needs to be cut off to Egypt? Do you guys find that as opposing factor as I do? It doesn't seem right. So something needs to change here, and maybe it's the law. A lot of this conversation about what went on on June 30th, is it a coup? It's not a coup. Is it a coup? It's not a coup. Our organization took the position that it's not a coup, because if it is a coup, then the money gets cut off. Now, how does that help our strategic relationship if the money gets cut off? And, you know, rightfully so, the Obama administration has not taken a position on that. And finally, um, is the status of non-governmental organizations. Again, many of us sort of lived through the whole IRI, NDI, what I call debacle in Egypt through 2011 and into 2012, and the misguided decisions that were taken by those in power. But I can tell you from my conversations in Egypt, absolute lost in translation and misunderstanding about what American NGOs are doing on the ground in Egypt. Okay, And again, how about this idea? I've had conversations, in fact, I was on the phone yesterday with a member, um, a senator, who sits on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We've been meeting with House members, senators, people in the administration. How about this for an idea? IRI and NDI are funded by NED. National Endowment for Democracy is funded by Congress. Why is it, has anyone stopped to think, why is it that we've named two NGOs after our two major political parties here in America? Do you not think that might offend some people if around, I don't know, Communist Party of China decided to set up their Washington office here? I mean, how about 
calling the democratic you know, work of both of these good organizations under one umbrella, under the National Endowment for Democracy. Why do we need two organizations that do the same thing? Why do we need to call them after two political parties in there? Ever think about that? Let's think outside the box here. Um, talk a little bit about the advocacy that our organization has done. Please feel free to go on our website, and one of our board members is here. I wanted to introduce Amin Mahmoud. Our uh, website is American Egyptian SA. That's American Egyptian Strategic Alliance, AmericanEgyptianSA.org. Um, we have sent letters to President Obama on the most recent issue of um, the June 30th Revolution, reminding the President what the revolution was all about. And Diane, some of the principles you talked about are exactly what we put in our letter. Um, we were very concerned at the time about the, the aid to Egypt being cut off. We also sent letters to Senator McCain, Graham, and Paul. I've had conversations with their staffers about this because all three senators have come out and call, um, called for aid to Egypt to be cut off. That does not help the U.S.-Egypt strategic relationship. Um, we've also talked about in that letter what we'd like to see moving forward, including reconciliation, holding responsible parties to what they promised. Of course, a little bit of what I talked about in the economic assistance package would be critical right now in showing Egypt that the United States is involved. Um, and finally, I'd like to wrap up um, with some recommendations for those of you who are in the audience, having served some time here on Capitol Hill and in the administration. Um, what my observations are is there is a lack of real-time information. So I urge all of you that have real-time information about what's going on in Egypt to share those with policymakers. Um, I was telling Kareem I was stunned as I was meeting with people on Capitol Hill leading up to June 30th, the lack of information, the fact that members and people even in the administration didn't have a clue about what was going to go on on June 30th, and we as an organization did, because we're in contact with people on the ground 24-7. You couldn't open your Facebook page and read Twitter for people on the ground in Egypt and not realize that June 30th was going to be huge. And yet policymakers were clueless. I even had one conversation where I said, you know, what's the U.S. Embassy going to be doing? What are the contingencies going to be? And the person said, I don't know. I'm going to go over to DOD now and ask them what the contingencies are going to be. I said, this is going to be big. And you know where the U.S. Embassy is located in Cairo, right next to Tahrir Square. Um, so there's a lack of real-time information. There's also a lack of substantive knowledge. Um, I'll say it, whether or not it's partisan or not, inability to take a stand on anything, and the inability to multitask. I find quite troubling, particularly with respect to U.S. policy in the broader Middle East. Uh, it's almost as if Syria is our focus now, we can't deal with you right now, Egypt. Or Egypt's our focus now, so we can't deal with you, Syria. And then there's Turkey. But what about Libya? Then there's Morocco. Oh, Qatar has a, you know, has a, has a change in, in, its, uh, in its leadership. And so, you know, I would urge policymakers, take a lesson here. You're going to have to multitask. The whole Middle East is changing, but in particular, I urge them to really focus on Egypt because Egypt's too big to fail and it's too important in the strategic relationship. Thank you. I have several questions that have been sent forward and I invite uh, the remainder of the hearings. How likely is uh, Morsi to be re-elected in the event of his being permitted to run again for the presidency? 
Egyptian democracy will depend on the willingness of an elected president to end his terms and hand power to an elected successor. What can be done now to make that more likely to occur when the time comes? Hold on. Second, now the Muslim Brotherhood members or so-called Salafists, the more extreme and narrowly focused element thereof, are part of the interim government. What does that mean for political reconciliation? And given the arrest of Muslim Brotherhood protesters and leaders, is the current government really interested in including them? We have here a gap between words and deeds. Perhaps, Diane, you've already uh, uh, answered that or focused on that. Uh, what if the Muslim Brotherhood persists in its activities that led to the current situation? How can Egypt progress with this faction at heart uh, with uh, the state? Uh, another one, would the United States ever consider cutting some or all aid to Egypt? If so, what would cause such a change? What about the agreement vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel? What about um, American government support for the American University in Cairo, which is America's largest university outside the United States, anywhere in the world? How much did um, President Morsi support for the rebels in, in Syria uh, to overthrow President Assad and also rhetorical support for Hamas affect the decision for the military to remove him? Okay, that's just a few of the easy ones here. So let's go back to um, the one about ultimately Egyptian democracy will depend on the willingness of an elected president to end his, I should add her, his or her term and hand power to an elected successor. What can be done now to make that more likely to occur when the time comes? Because recent evidence suggests that that time may not indeed come. Who would like to take that? I'll take that. All right. Um, Maybe going back to what you said at the very beginning, Dr. Andrew and Anthony, for a cerebral massage on these issues. We have actually a very bizarre situation now in Egypt because with all the concern about the transfer of power, we do actually have now three former presidents or leaders actually in Egypt at this time. We have former President Mubarak, who was uh, ousted from power in 2011. We have Field Marshal Tantawi, who set the very important precedent as leader of the military in handing power to President Morsi after free and fair elections uh, last year. And now we have, of course, former President Morsi and soon to be former President Adli Mansour. So I, I count four. Now this is actually a very bizarre situation because what we do need to get to is exactly what's implied in the question. A peaceful transfer of power from one president to another. Unfortunately, President Morsi had it within his grasp to set that precedent. Um, I think it's, it's lost on um, many observers of Egypt that 
even though he did win by a slim majority, that slim majority was given to him not just by his not just by his base, but by many of the liberal uh, forces that actually took to the streets one year later. People were willing to give President Morsi a chance, I think, because of a series of mistakes. He delegitimized his presidency and forfeited the chance for Egypt to reach that phase of the peaceful transfer of power. We have a second chance. We have a second chance, but we have to get it right. And hopefully, with the transition plan in place, we will get it right this time. Well, you make the cutting edge point that uh, Egypt is unique in terms of having three uh, presidents in the country. Uh, well, so do we. <laughs> in terms of the two Bushes, as well as uh, William Jefferson Clinton. Um, and Jimmy Carter, we have four. And they are not invisible. That's right. <laughs> 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 Please uh, think about the following here. How would we react, this is to American citizens here, if our President Obama got ousted by the army by force and um, was being detained uh, with uh, is human rights being violated, the Constitution being violated, and the rule of law being violated. Um, I want to think about that one. In addition to, we have in the last uh, decade, uh, a little bit more, shown that uh, we have a system where uh, the party that uh, gets the largest number of votes loses back to 2000 then. Um, this is a tough question here. I think, I think also that, I mean, I think the issue is the concentration of power in the hands of the executive. And we still see that happening. So, so the question becomes then sort of a, the old-fashioned checks and balances about how do you enable the legislature, how do you figure out election laws that are actually proportionally representative of the country, which is also, it's a very, you know, um, redistricting is all, always an incredibly, an incredibly difficult thing to do because there's such interest involved and we know it's difficult in Congress, it's very politically contentious. But, but if you strengthen the legislature and you strengthen others, other um, branches of government and other levels of government, if there are other levels of government, um, again, is it just the pharaoh? Is, is, it, is that the system? Is it just centralization? And it's not just about the president, but it's also about the way um, the government works and the way the state works. About a third of all Egyptians are employed by the government. Right? But is, you know, have we seen those kind of bold, innovative, sort of self-critical reforms of, 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 of various parts of the government as well? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to pick up on this last point that uh, then that it really depends a lot on the on the power of uh, that the president is given, and in that respect, I'd like to call your attention to a real, uh, you know, disturbing thing in the, the in the transition plan that the new constitution or the amendments to the constitution are supposed to be written by a committee of experts, ten experts, professor of professors of constitutional law former ju uh, judges that were all appointed by Bumarak, uh, incidentally, and 
there are major decisions that are political decisions that are going to be made by this group, including the one whether Egypt is going to have a presidential or a parliamentary system. And I would argue that, that in, in other words, how much power is this president going to have? And that's not a, uh, a choice to be made by a committee of experts. That's a major political choice. There are political, perfectly democratic political systems that have a parliamentary system that are perfectly democratic assuming that anything is perfectly democratic, but there are democratic political systems that have presidential systems, and that's a political decision. And whether or not that the president will step down, in a sense, depends on that to some extent. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Yes. yeah, I'll take the question on, will the US ever consider cutting aid to Egypt? I don't think so. Um, you know, again, when I was here on Capitol Hill, Every year when we did the Foreign Operations Appropriations Act, some senator would come forward being mad at Egypt or something and threaten to cut aid off, and it would never happen. Um, but I do think there will be a more honest conversation about that aid, like I talked about. But let's not forget about this. That aid to Egypt isn't a gift to Egypt. It protects the U.S. strategic interests. What are those U.S. national strategic interests? Well, number one, that aid package was given to Egypt because of the Camp David Peace Accords. That's where it all started. It is in the strategic interest of the United States for Egypt and our strongest ally in the region, Israel, to have peace. Whether it's a cold peace or not, it's peace. Okay? It's in the strategic interest to keep the Suez Canal open. It is impacting the world oil market if something happens to the Suez Canal. Okay? The strategic location of Egypt not only flyover rights, but it's geopolitical location. Um, it's political leadership in the Arab world, particularly with respect to the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. <clears throat> Can't be underestimated. That is in the United States' interest. Forget about Egypt. Let's talk about the U.S. here. That is in our Egypt. Uh, that is in our strategic interest. That's why we will not cut aid off, but we will rethink it, I think. Uh, my point that you made, um, Rhonda, worth underscoring in the sense that it's accepted on Capitol Hill that Turkey has long been a uh, strategic uh, asset and ally to the United States in part because of its membership in NATO. Uh, but this point that you made of the Suez Canal, uh, every day, uh, not just the United States, but uh, most of the Western world uh, benefits from Egypt's uh, responsible handling of the Suez Canal. And that is hardly seen as Turkey has been seen, uh, whose role is much less with the implosion of the Soviet Union uh, and the ending of the uh, Cold War. Uh, it's just a rhetorical question here, I tag on, does Egypt need American assistance anymore after the GCC countries have pledged uh, to support uh, Egypt uh, financially? Uh, that's more point, I think, than, than, than a question. Um, if you think, or any of you think, that um, the problem with uh, NGOs is their nomenclature, uh, National Democratic Institute, International Republican Institute, is it really their names? How does one then explain the trial and conviction of other NGOs, such as Freedom House? Uh, such as the International Center for Journalists, such as the German Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Doesn't it better to focus attention on a non-oppressive macro 
NGO law in Egypt that would allow all uh, legitimate uh, NGOs to work freely. Can I take that one? Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry if I meant to imply that, but uh, no, there's a deeper, much deeper issue on that, and I think I referred to that by I said lost in translation. No matter if it's any one of these, Freedom House, IRI, NDI, any American NGO, the leadership in Egypt has a great misunderstanding of what those NGOs are actually doing on the ground. Okay? I spent a great deal of time with IRI and NDI when I was in Egypt in July of 2011. I then had a two and a half hour meeting with senior generals at SCAF. And what I heard from SCAF, what they thought those NGOs were doing versus what the NGOs were actually doing. That's what I mean by lost in translation. There is a misunderstanding, purposeful or not, what these organizations are doing on the ground. Okay? And rightfully so. There are activities that these NGOs are undertaking that the Egyptian government has no idea what they're doing. Polling? Polling, political polling, never even existed in Egypt prior to the revolution. And then you have some of these NGOs going out there and polling people on their political views. Something we take for granted here in the United States. You have activities of them going out on the streets treating, uh, training people in advocacy. I think it's a great thing. I'm a big advocate of advocacy training. Okay? But it's misunderstood. And we have to be very careful what these NGOs are doing. There's also money being flown in there. There's financial assistance to these NGOs that are coming directly from the United States Congress and from the U.S. government. Okay? There's a misunderstanding about what they're doing with the money. I even had the term street money thrown at me. Do you know that these American NGOs are handing out money? And I laughed. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Street money, that's a democratic thing we do in the United States. I mean, like the Democratic Party walks around in Detroit handing out street money. We don't do that. We Republicans don't do that. But they were not laughing. Uh, these kinds of misunderstandings about what these NGOs are doing on the ground, it is not the nomenclature. It starts with the nomenclature. But it goes way beyond that. And I think, again, there needs to be an honest understanding. The conviction was an abomination. I was the last person in the world that had predicted that some of my very good friends <laughs> would have been convicted. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, but who are we to step forward and say they really weren't doing what you think they were doing? Um, there's a great deal of misunderstanding, and perhaps it was gone about the same way. I'm not saying I have the solution to this, but I will tell you it is a big problem, and it cannot be solved overnight. I turn it back to um, you, uh, Kareem, and uh, Dr. Ottaway. How does an important government uh, acquire and or hold on to the kind of popular legitimacy needed to write a new constitution that will have long-term public support in Egypt? Well, this is actually a very challenging task, and uh, just maybe to uh, add one point of information to what Marina mentioned earlier. The constitution writing process uh, does start with a committee of experts uh, that is appointed by the interim president, the committee of ten, to recommend changes uh, in the constitution. Those will be submitted by, to a committee of 50 that will be broadly politically representative of all political stripes uh, in Egypt to put forward a draft constitution. Uh, that will be put to public discussion and then to a public referendum. The challenge is to balance two contradictory impulses. 
the impulse to be inclusive, which obviously takes time, it takes debate, it takes uh, uh, public discourse uh, to develop a consensus. But then that's balanced against the need for a timely transition. And of course, the longer the transition drags on, the more its legitimacy uh, suffers. So I think the interim leadership has to balance between these two things. And it's not clear to me how they strike that balance. There is still a debate whether the constitution writing process only deals with amendments to the existing constitution or rewriting the constitution altogether, which will take more time. So that, that is always the difficult balance to strike in any transitional process. Yes. I agree that this, uh, the need to move on quickly on the issue of the Constitution. I think it's important to keep in mind that the Constitution is not as important as people make it up to. I have watched in my career, which is times quite a few decades at this point, more Constitution just being dismissed uh, in various countries around the world. You can. The, the Constitution itself is a piece of paper unless there is a real consensus behind it, unless there, so that I think that the risk is that there is going to be too much time spent, as it's happening in Tunisia now, trying to refine the last comma on the Constitution rather than moving on. The big, where I think there is going to be a huge problem, and I suspect that that's where the timetable is going to start to slip in, is in the nomination of this fifth member. Commission, because the way it's a, the language is very really ambiguous, because the kind of uh, the uh, representation that's called for in the declaration in the in the proclamation is corporate representation. In other words, that there are going to be representatives of lawyers and of judges and of uh, the, you know peasants and workers and this and that. It does not mean anything about political representation. In other words, you can have a you could have a committee that hits every single one of those categories, and it's all composed of, uh, the, of uh, secularists. Or you could have one that's all composed of leftists, or so-called liberals, or whatever you can. And I think it's in, in those nominations that there is going to be a huge part of the unfortunately, that might slow down the process. All right, we have a few uh, more minutes, uh, and a few uh, more uh, quick questions uh, involving uh, Islamist, uh, Salafist, Muslim brother, who are now trying to believe uh, for them and, and do one question here. Uh, after the fall of the Morsi government and the subsequent crackdown on the Brotherhood, what will be their role, likely role, in the upcoming elections and political processes? Semicolon. How will the interim government react to further political involvement by other Islamist organizations? Semicolon. Who is likely to be calling the shots in the Muslim Brotherhood now that its leaders are under arrest? Does the lack of clear leadership increase the likelihood of splinter groups uh, turning uh, to violence? And uh, how likely uh, is Morsi working to be permitted to run for re-election, to be re-elected? in the event of his uh, uh, being uh, committed to run for the presidency. Um, those are four all wrapped up into the brothers, the Salafists, and the Islamist uh, groups. Uh, Kareem, I'll give you first work at that. That's like a uh, riddle wrapped up in the name. <laughs> um, 
I honestly can't claim any particular expertise or knowledge about the inner workings of the Muslim Brotherhood. We are, of course, dealing with a very opaque, very untransparent organization, uh, the inner workings of which are still uh, very much a mystery, even to uh, Egyptians. Um, I would go back to what I said, that the choice before the Brotherhood is clear. Now, I think it, it, it's clear to be candid about what has and what has not happened. That the number of Muslim Brotherhood leaders have been arrested, yes, that has taken place. And uh, as I mentioned, they are facing charges of incitement, and they will uh, be uh, investigated and tried uh, according to due process, as it has been the case with leaders of the former Mubarak regime. What has not happened, there has not been a dissolution of the Freedom and Justice Party, there has not been a mass crackdown on the grassroots membership of the Brotherhood. If we open our television sets right now, we will find them demonstrating in the streets. And as long as they abide by the peaceful, uh, uh, as long as those demonstrations are peaceful, they will uh, be continued to allow uh, to demonstrate. So I think the choice before them is clear. There was, though, one question that was asked previously that alluded to a very important point. Can the Brotherhood be reintegrated into Egyptian politics if they persist in their majoritarian strategy? I would argue that there is a need for a broad rethinking within the ranks of the Brotherhood. And right now, we don't see that. There is no introspection. There is no accountability for all of the mistakes that the Brotherhood has committed, not only to the detriment of Egypt, but to the detriment of the Brotherhood as a movement. I think before there is a real reintegration over the long term for the Brotherhood, there has to be change within the Brotherhood itself. But in terms of the official position of the interim leadership, the door is open. They have a seat at the table to write the Constitution, to participate in elections, and I think there's no illusion that they can be excluded from Egyptian politics. Uh, we're at time. I, I'm going to just uh, put on the table three questions for people to think about, uh, sort of thought for food at, at the noon hour here. Um, is it possible that the Muslim Brotherhood could shift to become more like the uh, Islamist party in Turkey? Uh, no answer, no. Uh, what do you think are the most important steps needed to get Egypt's economy back on track? Um, and how, if at all, will the influence of the Al-Azhar likely increase or decrease in the light of recent social societal tension and the need that uh, Dr. Singapore has pointed out for social justice? Uh, no answers from the panel or from the audience on this. We've all had a great cerebral massage. Thank you for coming. See you at the next one. <laughs>